Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is Michael Adams. Nothing but the truth, one man's journey to find it. It's August the 12th, 2015. And uh, we're going to be playing some more audio of uh, Fox's book, Martyrs. And uh, uh, a little bit on um, Martyr's Mirror. And let's go over that a little bit. First of all, thanks to Andrew for sending some information and you know, bringing up the fact that uh, those who were persecuted by the Protestants as well. And then also uh, Gordon Constant for bringing up uh, Martyr's Mirror. Unfortunately, I can't find an audio book of that. And unfortunately, my eyesight is progressively getting worse this week. And as struggling enough as it is reading and things are really blurry right now and uh, some people say well it's signs of diabetes I don't know if that's the case I think it's just symptoms of my MS anyways um, let's see Wikipedia Martyr's Mirror uh, Martyr's Mirror or Bloody Theater <laughs> first published in Holland in 1660 in Dutch by uh, uh, Theomen J. Van Brot documents the stories and testimonies of Christian martyrs, especially anti, the Anabaptists. We haven't really done much about the, dealing with the Anabaptists um, in this show. Um, the full title of the book is The Bloody Theater or uh, Martyr's Mirror of the defenseless Christians who baptized only upon confession of faith and who suffered and died for the testimony of Jesus, their Savior, from the time of Christ to the year of 1660. And Andrew, he brought up the fact that, you know, maybe we should be talking about that as well. It's great to be talking, you know, sharing the... Uh, uh, Playing the Fox's Book of Martyrs, but there's there's more to the story. He's right. Uh, the use of the word defenseless is, in this case, refers to anti-Baptist belief in non-resistance. The book includes accounts of martyrdom of the apostles and the stories of martyrs from the previous centuries with belief similar to anti-Baptists. Next to the Bible, the Martyr's Mix Mirror, excuse me, Martyr's Mirror, has historically been held as the most significant and prominent place in Amish and Mennonite homes. Interesting. <clears throat> in 1745, Jacob... Uh, Gotts Haller, I think that's uh, Cox, Gotts Skulk, arranged the Euphrates Cloister. And I wish my eyes weren't so blurry. It's hard enough to read as it is, but it's just sort of things. To have uh, them translate the uh, martyr's mirror from Dutch into German, and to print it. Okay, we go further, and it says here, uh, for, 
first English edition translated from German by I. Daniel Rump was published by uh, David Miller Lamp Nutter Square, Pennsylvania, 1837. The edition entitled The uh, uh, Martyrology of the Churches of Christ was uh, translated and printed in England in 1850, looks like, and in two uh, volumes by Edward Bean Underhill. Man, I cannot see it. It's driving me nuts. The, my eyes are all blurry from the stupid head nuts. My apologies. I'm doing the best I can here, folks. But you can look it up on uh, the information box. I sent the, uh, at least the book. You can find it on Wikipedia, what I'm reading right now. <clears throat> I wonder if this, there's an audio on this as uh, a, mart, a martyrology of the Christian the Church of Christ. And of course, I'm not saying it right. Of course. As usual, I can barely even read it, let alone pronounce it. Let's see, we go like this. More. Let's see if there's any uh, videos on this. Hmm. Not really. I can't find it yet. Crimes of the Catholic Church, Third Holocaust. Surprise, surprise. Hmm. Let's see, should get out of there. Sorry about the delays, as usual. Um, the Martyr's Mirror differs from the Fox Books of, uh, of Martyrs and was, was translated and printed in English in 1850, two volumes. Okay, Book of Martyrs, in that it only includes uh, those martyrs which were considered non-resistant, while Fox Books of Martyrs uh, does not include many anti-Baptist martyrs. Of course not. Uh, it would be great to find somebody who would be willing to read this thing. Um, and... Um, And uh, put it online. It looks like no one's willing to do it. But then again, it's, we're talking about Anabaptists are such a small number. Now we're talking their the guilt by association with the uh, uh, Mennonites, etc. Instead of following for the, following the truth and not being concerned about joining the group, and so it's hard to find people like that. I would love to read it myself. I got so many books I need to read, and I don't know how it's ever going to happen. My eyes keep progressively getting worse as they're doing. I don't know how I'm going to do it. So, hopefully, somebody else will come back and start doing it again. Whenever they're ready. Wink, wink. You know who I'm talking about, don't you, Bardo? 
<clears throat> the importance of it, even if there's only a few dozen or a few hundred or a few thousand that listen to it. Um, darnest of things. The way things work out. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, you got this uh, uh, Martyr's Mirror, uh, the Defenseless Christians. It's pretty, pretty interesting. I couldn't really find anything too much. I will be uh, playing a sermon. You can find it on a YouTube channel, Simon Otts. And if, or if you just look up Martyr's Mirrors, and you'll see this sermon. It looks like from uh, it's like uh, 2007, 08, uh, 119 lessons from. So it looks like excuse me, 19 lessons from uh, the book of from the Martyr's Mirror. Um, then it goes historical teaching, etc. It's got most. I uh, think Moses, uh, not Moses, Moses, uh, Stoles, plus historical teachings. I don't know, there might be more to it. I have to look in more deeper and listen to it. But, uh, you know, for, I listened to a little bit of this sermon, first half. I like it. It's, um, a lot of people won't like it because it's uh, really pounds hard on the Calvinism. And there are five points. <clears throat> but it looks to me like the anti-Baptists really were offering some hope. I do agree, I do value their um, anti-war stance. Um, I think that's what we're supposed to be if we're going to be followers of Christ. Or Christ. We're not supposed to be picking up arms and fighting Satan's wars. Um, anyway, it's a very complicated issue when it comes to um, the role of Christians in this world looks like 99% of people call themselves Christians really aren't. It's easy for me to say that because I'm looking from the, from the outside in, so I'm, it's easier for me to observe these things and give more honest opinion because I don't have too much biases. Well, I do have my biases, but they don't seem to interfere when it comes to allegiances to particular organizations or churches, so anyways, we're going to have this week, hopefully, uh, well, yeah, the other thing is, they're still blocking me, uh, my conversation with Johnny Cerucci, um, we did the show back on Sunday, now it's Wednesday early morning, and they still haven't released it, so that it can be listened to, the other thing I could think of is because uh, now Johnny, every weekend that I've had him on, there's been complications. And there's something about Johnny that they do not like. They don't like with the show, and they, they're, you know, repressing it. You know, remember the talk show is a free outlet, and therefore nothing is free. So by by me doing this, you know, I'm opening my uh, myself up for a lot more uh, observations, if you will. Uh, and I say whatever it is out there, whatever organization that's monitoring talks you. And, I, you know, Johnny does talk a little bit too much about the revolutionary stance type of thing. I don't, I don't lie more in the anti-Baptist school of thought that uh, our way of standing our ground is not by rebelling against satanic, the satanic as we live under, but just following Christ. 
Now they will perceive it that way, but that's not neither here or there for us. Um, you know, picking up arms and all that kind of stuff is nonsense. It's not going to change anything. It never has, and it never will. We have now thousands of years of testimony of that one, so why waste your time with that? But I think I agree with the anti-Baptist perspective, at least the old school one, that we're you're not involved in politics, you're not involved with all the nonsense that's out there, you're not involved in their wars. If they want to persecute you, it looks like they end up using their apostate Protestants to do it mostly, along with Catholics, but... Um, Yeah. Or you, you know the stage they're in and out stages of uh, the Muslims, unfortunately. But um, yeah, so we'll listen. We'll uh, I'm doing the best I can when it comes to this. I know Andrew, thank you for bringing it up. That uh, you know, don't forget about this, this side of the story, their side of the story. The, and probably in the end of the day has a greater value than we actually even realize. Um, and unfortunately, no one's bothered to actually... I understand it's a huge book, two volumes in English. Um, supposedly, if I heard correctly, you'll hear more, that the uh, largest book in English print prior to the Revolutionary War, at least coming out of America, supposedly. I don't know if I got that right or not. But, so anyway, so yeah, back to this whole thing about the show with Johnny Cerucci. For some reason, they're blocking it. Like the only thing I can think of, because I have problems with guests. They usually has been on Skype's end. They've interviewed through Skype. There's been one time uh, where I tried to do a show with James Japan, and they just dropped as far as recording. There's problems with uh, TalkShoe. But for some reason, they're blocking the show with Johnny Cerucci and I from Sunday. I've sent them several emails now. They suddenly finally responded earlier this, today, or yesterday, Tuesday, and said, you know, if, he, if the show doesn't pop up in 24 hours, he had me else again. And, um, you know, I understand that TalkShoe is a free service, quote-unquote free service. I don't have to pay for it uh, with money. Of course, nothing is free in this world, so how am I paying for it? Well, part of it is, truth is, they uh, are scanning my show. I'm sure they are. They are... Um, Taking, making their tabs or notes, especially a show like mine where I'm trying to find the truth and I'm not really, although it's been guilty as my sensationalism and everything else, and I'm sure I, I'm only scratching the surface of what the truth actually is, we um, do touch areas that uh, others find offensive. And um, but then again, truth is, so. And I imagine that there's something going on with Johnny, because uh, he's pretty hardcore. A lot, he had a different approach than I have. And the only thing I can think of is there's something we have issues with Johnny. Therefore, they're uh, been causing problems whenever we have a show. It's every weekend now. I've done four shows with him. Every weekend that we've done it, uh, had problems downloading shows and etc. This is the worst. 
so far. They literally they've allowed shows after to be downloaded, but this one they have not allowed. And I know for certain that it was recorded because when we started, we heard it being recorded, and we when we ended, it said that the recording had ended. There was no. Uh, I have no idea. I don't know why they're blocking it. It says there's two hours and forty some minutes of it. We can actually look at it and see for right. And um, but it's not there. And they're just they're just. The only thing I can think of is that, quote-unquote, got lost in the ether, or they uh, are deliberately blocking it because they haven't had that issue in months. Now, on that show, we talked about Bigfoot and the Flat Earth and the Jesuits, and we talked about how they're deceiving us and how they're using... uh, So I was trying to get the point across, I probably failed at it, but this whole thing about Bigfoot and not being a... Um, a lot of what we see out there is um, deception and it seems to be deliberate. I mean, look at the history of mankind and how they use superstitions to, in order to, reach, to uh, suppress or the masses, if you will, keep them in line, herded into their city-states, their villages, their uh, communities, their, um, uh, you know, whatever. Um, their group don't go out in the woods a boogeyman will get you and I'm not saying that there's not such a thing as uh, 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 an ape like creature out there Um, actually I hope there is that's my own personal feeling Um, only because someday I wouldn't mind seeing one no matter how scary and ugly they are (laughs) you know um and then other people feel it might be some spiritual moment, and they could be right. And if that's the case, and it's demonic, then of course I don't want to see it. So, uh, but one thing I do know is is that they use things like this as a way of uh, you know stories like dragons and Bigfoot and monsters to contain the populace. Is something that they definitely used throughout history, and they didn't have the canon laws, the the papacy, uh, the most satanic of all witches and witchcraft sorcery that there is out there, we call them the papacy. Um, and of course, obviously, they have no, they, had, they obviously had no match to them. So when there are all these big, <laughs> it's fascinating to think how this, the white and dark magic of uh, Rome has of course, the super dragon gives his power, but the magic that he has in order to usurp all the world. <laughs> Fascinating stuff. Seeing it right now, seeing it going on again. So, uh, I don't know why they're blocking it. I'll try again. Uh, the only thing I can think of is because last show we did, it got a ton, maybe the most downloads ever. He even sold some books, and maybe it's as a red flag for them that that's why they don't want. Because this show is very, very small. Hardly anybody listens to it or ever will listen to it. They know that. They're, they're all right with that. They don't care as long as it's small and insignificant. It makes no difference. A show like mine, if it were to blossom, explode, and people really started listening to it, then, you know, <laughs> they would hey, be more concerned. But, you know, anything does happen to me, it will be because of them anyway. So, um, But how they go about it, you know, so. Um, 
But as far as me being and the show being a significant threat, obviously it's not. Even though I'm imparting some pretty interesting insights and information that challenge everything that's out there, because hardly anybody's listening, they don't do anything. But with the last show that me and Johnny did, a ton of people listened um, for some reason, and of course that's probably because they like Johnny. And um, the message. And um, I had no idea why they're blocking it outside of that. But they find an, an issue, a threat, which is ridiculous. But they get Johnny has, you know, a military background and and uh, talks assertively and all that, so they might, I'm sure that's where they find a threat at. That's what they understand. They don't understand passivism or just a more uh, a sober um, approach to things. They don't find that a threat at all, and they're probably they're right. In reality, my show overall, although I have thousands of hours now of information, um, they know that the average person will not listen or keep up with it. So, And that's an understated myth. <laughs> you know, if I if I was a guy working uh, as a musician playing on a Friday nights at a coffee shop on a regular basis, I would have more of a following that doing that than this. So, uh, obviously, I'm doing this not because of uh, money or popularity or uh, um, it's just the love of the truth. Uh, hopefully, I'm serving my Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ in some way. Um, probably not in a significant way, and probably not even satisfactory with our Lord, but I am put in this position for a reason, because I certainly didn't volunteer it or want it. So, <laughs> Anyways, then we're this rest of this week, until Eric shows up, uh, we're going to be um, playing a lot of... Uh, Eric's uh, work on the anti-federalist papers from thinkorbebeaten.com. By the way, I had a chance to be, uh, I jumped in on, um, I should look into this again before I get to, but it was before I get get too distracted here, so we're going to be listening to this anti-federalist uh, virtually unheard of today, the Anti-Federalists uh, provided powerful arguments in opposition to the reasoning advanced by the contemporaries, the Federalists, who supported the Constitution today, the government, its size and power and emphasis on the executive branch is an unfortunate testimony to the anti-federalist alarms. And so we'll be listening to what he had to say and kind of preparing preparing ourselves for the conversation that we'll have with Eric the Blacksmith. I think it's very relevant and I find it very interesting too this week that we're going to go back into time here and I know most of the world will not be at at all interested in this and see any significance, but I certainly do. That's why I'm doing it between the Book of Martyrs, 
the Fox Book of Martyrs, a little bit about this uh, anti-Baptist and what they went in is probably more, even a more significant message. And even more significantly is how oppressed this message is because it's so hard to find a thing on YouTube. You can find the book, but there's no hardly anything. <clears throat> Which is another interesting uh, red flag as far as probably being the truth. And, you know, the, the Internet's overwhelmed by crap from the Seventh-day Adventists their distortion of the Bible, history, and etc., and even their legalism, and they are nothing more than an arm of the papal. This, the irony of ironies is how they expose the papacy with the most open voices, and yet they actually are part of the Roman Empire and part of the papal system. <laughs> uh, it's masterful what the Satan does. So, And there really is just a, a narrow road I'm discovering, and there's a dish on both sides. One of those ditches seems to be legalism. Um, not that I'm worthy of being your preacher or your pastor, as edifying others would say, I'm just a novice, and so therefore I don't put a lot of time in being your preacher because I'm still trying to figure it out myself. A lifetime of deception and being deceived and being honest and humble enough to accept that and then going from there. It's a good point, starting point and premise to go with this with at this point. Never really had that kind of an issue in only day overall in my life. Uh, I knew even as a kid in the public school system that uh, I was being fed a, a bunch of B and even as a kid growing up as a Mormon and going on more mission there's so many things that didn't seem right. Very fascistic and totalitarian in its own nature. Yeah, so um what an oppressive life it's been, really. Also, that oppression, well, it has been physical, but even more importantly, this psychologically and spiritual, what's between my ears, and how much worthless or oppressive information I've received. So, anyways, this week, when we go back into time, I still got all these other things to do. I'm so overwhelmed with where to go with all this, folks. I really don't know where to go with it all. It's real easy. Sometimes, you know, um, and I look at others and they kind of keep it simple they, on a particular topic, and it does make sense. Um, but I'm not that person. I'm not interested in being that person. So I want to know the truth, and the truth bounces you around like a ping pong ball here and there until you kind of get leveled out here where it's, where it's really at. Um, anyways, Chris uh, from Hoaxbusters. Conspiracy or Just Theory is uh, the show on TalkShoe called HoaxBustersCall.com. Chris does a really great job, but I guess John Adams is there, too. I think that's his real name, but I don't know. When we're talking, it seemed like he's being cynical about it. I still get pretty convinced that the only person who has his own real name on these shows is, is myself. And, you know, is that a great moral stance on my part? Am I making some kind of... <laughs> no, I actually sound get the impression that I'm too stupid to realize that that's maybe what we're supposed to do. But again, as far as uh, being anonymous and my own uh, worry about people doing something to it, I'm not. Fake name or not, it's not going to help you. It's not going to keep you. If they want you, they can track you, especially if you're doing a show like this. I mean, it's already done. It's done, done deal. They know everything about me. If they want to destroy me tomorrow, they can and it wouldn't be too difficult in my situation because it's already pretty much there to begin with. So it's just to be, you know, 
uh, whatever, just more than the same old. But uh, anyways, uh, yeah, let's look like last night. I don't know if that's, if that's been recorded yet. It might have. Um, it doesn't even look like they did. And last night, oh, maybe it did. If you look at, uh, it's probably that one. It's a hoaxbuster secret Nazi moon landing was on something. On the bat, people, <laughs> okay, <laughs> whatever it is. But anyways, you look at that, it's, uh, it looks like 8, 10, 15 hours on there. I just joined. I wasn't a special guest or anything that I believe. Yeah, I was involved in the conversation. It was a very interesting conversation where we bounced around from uh, the moon landing hoax to um, uh, what's going on with the nuclear weapon hoax to um, all sorts of things. And uh, I really appreciate it. I do like Chris's work. I like Chris. I would like to have him come on the show. I've played a couple of his stuff on my show. There's not too many... Um, you know, that, that, not that I really spend a lot of time trying to find other people's shows naturally because I'm busy with doing my own thing, but whenever I have this, is, he's one of the few people that I've, like, enjoy listening to. He's, he seems like a legit guy, down to earth. He's trying to find the answers to some of the questions, but he focuses on something, you know, all the deception out there as far as the hoaxes and all that kind of stuff. He does have guests. He actually had um, uh, Dave McGowan on. I like him. I like John, too. I think they're, they're an eclectic uh, couple of guys and are able to talk about many different things. I'm not really interested in the philosophy of the world. I'm not interested in philosophies and other approaches. So they're, much, they're much more tolerant about other uh, other people's points of view. And if I see it as is BS is BS, and I'm going to move on. And um, hopefully, I'm going to move on. <laughs> but anyways, you can check it out. That's your good stuff. Good guys. I would like to have him come on the show and just have a conversation. I think they, uh, he'd be one of those guys like me and Johnny, or me and Gordon, where we can kind of bounce off back and forth, and, and we do have a conversation. Might not be the most amazing of things, but, you know, very natural, and that's what I've been looking for, is just people you can just have a conversation with. Because I honestly feel that's one of the best ways to learn. But unfortunately, we're stuck in a situation of this classroom dynamics. A guy in front of the podium, and there's really not much of a difference, really, between, you know, the the professor sitting on the podium regurgitating information to you and myself, unfortunately. I know that might sound a little negative, but if you really think about it, um, you know, a show like mine is so limited because there's not a lot of people who are willing to contribute and be part of or even, you know, people listen, people download. There seems to be that hardcore group of people, but it's a very small hardcore group of people who recognize what they're getting is of value. Um, but the more, you know, that's how it goes. So. I'll stop complaining here, move on. Uh, actually, it's, 
yahoo.com. Is there anything worth looking at? Ten Bible passages that might be totally bogus. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Yahoo. They're definitely controlled and run by the Jesuits and Roman Catholics. Constant attack on the Bible. Instead of a more balanced, if you really say, like, look at, there are certain things in the Bible that might not be accurate. Let's look at them and discuss it. You just go right into it. It might be bogus, okay. Mormon's reaction to Joseph Smith's um, seer stones, the stuff of revelation or a rock of rock to mock. <laughs> Here we go again. Um, editorial, if the LDS splits from scouts, Utah camps should be shared, whatever. And of course, this probably has to do with the homo erotica yeah, yeah. <clears throat> sodomite nation that they want to create force upon us. Make everybody think that it's natural to put your penis in some of these stinking butthole full of poop. Oh, what a loving act that is. <laughs> just crazy. People are him. They're just nuts. Honestly, we're nuts. We're absolutely nuts. It's what it comes down to. Absolute nuts. Uh, if Mormons leave scouting, BSA will feel it. Boy Scouts of America in its wall. And I think he's probably right. I remember when I grew up as a Boy Scout, uh, Mormons were really big and always really big into it. So probably uplifting it. But then again, part of this whole thing is too is an attack on the Mormon Church and to just completely demonize it. And by the way, I'm not really have any great sympathy for the Mormon Church at all because they are a deception and they are controlled by the Jesuits and a bunch of Luciferians on the top. And they're teaching false doctrines and fantasies and delusions and they're corrupting God's people and sending them straight to hell. Um, so I have no sympathy once they want at all for them, but. The fact of the matter is, is that uh, you can see the Jesuit agenda of now tearing down one of their uh, false system and idols. That's what they do, just like the actors. And I'm going to do it with all these different churches. And if you look at even the Protestant churches movement and then the apostasy and that's going on, you know. The degree of separation from the Protestant Church and the actual papacy and the Mormon Catholic Church is pretty insignificant at the end of the day, it looks like. It is, but it isn't type of thing. You know, they're still reined in. They're still controlled by the papacy. They still are the daughter churches. And they still do her bidding, like going to all the, doing all her wars throughout the world. Pope and Congress. Uh, Francis is certain to challenge lawmakers, well, I imagine he will be since he runs that damn place. Unfortunately, folks, you and I clearly at this point live in a Roman Catholic church, probably our whole life, but as the Jesuits in the Roman Catholic church does, it's always operated on a little bit of truth and a whole bunch of lies and deceptions. It seems like it cannot exist without lying to you about everything, including the fact that you live in a Roman Catholic church. Goodness gracious, a Roman Catholic country, 
Might as well be Catholic Church. What's the difference? Oh, you hate Roman Catholics? No, I don't. I don't hate I don't hate Roman Catholics. People that I care about love love greatly. You know they don't reciprocate. Are Roman Catholic? Um, I don't hate them at all. I hate the deception and the lies. Is what I hate. I hate the satanic nature of it all, and um, and just how wicked it all is. And you can. It's all going to all lead back to the Jesuits and the, the Roman Empire, my friends. It all does. All roads lead back to Rome. They sure, certainly do. So anyways, I'll shut up for now. I think I've done my sermon. And uh, we'll listen to first. We'll think we'll listen to um, the sermon here. There's a gentleman. I don't know who he is. Sounds like he might be an anti-Baptist. And uh, talking about... I guess a lecture, if you will, service cross lectures last for sermon. Actually, I like lectures better. To be honest with you, people say, "Oh, I can't stand being lectured," but of course, that's a misuse of words in itself, too. Uh, let's see, get this going here. Maybe what I'll do first is uh, we'll listen to. Just a little brief introduction to the book, uh, The Martyr's Mirror, and then we'll go into the sermon, and then we'll go into Fox's Book of Martyrs and do part two. So here we go. Oh, history of mankind. The Bloody Theater. What sort of title is that for a book? And what does that have to do with a German religious community in colonial Pennsylvania? The book is certainly bloody, telling the stories of early Christians who died in defense of their faith. Most people call the book by a shorter title, The Martyr's Mirror. Many of these early martyrs whose stories fill the pages were Anabaptists, people who believed it's necessary to make a statement of personal faith before being baptized. Many of these people are of Mennonite or Amish faith. It was the Mennonites who wanted copies of this important book in the 1740s. They came with their request to the historic effort of Cloister. This German religious community was founded in 1732 in Lancaster County. Here, the Mennonites found a community of celibate men and women who operated a printing press, made their own paper and ink, and had a tannery to make the leather bindings for the finished book. Most importantly, Ephrata had the talent to translate copies of the book originally published in Holland to the German language spoken by Pennsylvania's early Mennonites. Fifteen of Ephrata's brothers worked for three years to produce the massive volume. When finished, the book weighed 13 pounds, but it was not just one copy of the book, but 1,300 copies that were produced. The work resulted in the publication of the largest book produced in America before the Revolutionary War. To see a copy of this great work and the place it was created, visit Historic Effort of Cloister in the heart of Pennsylvania's Dutch country, just west of Philadelphia. Now, I would just like to look at comments here. Did I, did I really say it took 13 years on top of 1,300 pages and 13 pounds? So I just want to listen to this again. Celibate men and women. 
most important, but wow. Shepard had the talent to Shepard. translate copies of the book originally published in Holland to the German language spoken by Pennsylvania's early Mennonites. Fifteen of Efforta's brothers worked for three years to produce the massive volume. So fifteen brothers, it took three years to create the massive volume. The book weighed thirteen pounds. But it was not just one copy of the book, but thirteen hundred copies that were produced. So this is not only one copy, it was 13 pounds with 1,300 copies. Why th- this 13 stuff? What's up with that in our country? Totally occultic in nature. The work resulted in the publication of the largest book produced in America before the Revolution. And apparently it was the largest book ever produced prior to the Revolution in America. Oh, what a mess it all is. Honestly, what a mess it all is. So anyways, now we'll listen to this uh, lesson on uh, lecture lesson. It's more like a sermon, I think, on the martyr's mirror. Greetings to all of you in Jesus' name. I, likewise, I'm glad to be here this morning. I've been greatly blessed in these past uh, few evenings that I've been allowed to be here. I was away last weekend and uh, only came home late Tuesday night, so I got in on a late start, but uh, we are been very blessed by the Spirit and content and messages of these meetings and do rejoice that something like that can take place in our time and especially for such a need as this. Uh, let's stand together for prayer, get a little change of position, and once again call upon God for his direction. Father in heaven, we want to thank you and bless you again the opportunity that we have to preach the gospel, the truth, to look at the history of Christianity and uh, the faith uh, uh, of uh, the, the truth, the true faith that has been handed down through the ages. We thank you for them. Like the Hebrew writer says that they, without us, uh, we need together go into heaven together. Christians of the past and also those of the present, that we be brethren and we uh, speak basically the same truth and the same gospel. Thank you, Father, for the Holy Spirit. We pray that you truly give us the power of God, which is not from ourselves, to speak the things that need to be spoken and that uh, truth can prevail and our minds and hearts can be illuminated today uh, in, with these things. And thank you again, Lord, for touching the hearts of these people and bringing revival to Lancaster County in part. We know it is not near what we would like to see, but we are so thankful. Many, many big things have small beginnings, and we thank God for that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm 
the title of my message this morning is Lessons from the Martyr's Mirror. I do thank the brethren for giving me that title. At first I thought that may be a little mundane for some of you, but uh, as we notice uh, the expressions Brother Melvin made on the ignorance of, of history, many times among the plain people we recognize that this is a subject that should not be mundane. It brought a fresh and new appreciation for that piece of literature, which I believe to be a masterpiece of literature, spanning virtually 1,670 years, or at least over 1,600 years of church history from the time of the apostles until about 1670, and giving a very accurate and detailed account of the defenseless Christians through the ages written by Thielman Van Brocht uh, in that time, in, in the late 1600s or mid-1600s when he wrote it, and it is known, as I mentioned before, as the history of the defenseless Christians through the centuries. Now, the reason I thank the brethren for that subject is because I had taken a course in that in Bible school when I was about 18 years of age at Carbonell Bible School, in Ohio for six weeks, and that was a blessing. But I have never, I don't believe, since that read so much as I did again in the last two weeks in my spare time to just get the heartbeat of the book and the accounts that are given there, which once again uh, deeply, deeply influenced my life and challenged me, and I was thankful for that. Now, one of the reasons this is precious to me, likewise, is because uh, our beginnings 25 years ago at Charity Christian Fellowship, when we began there, actually I should say the Bible study that led up to the church, which was some months prior to that, three of us brethren, which were both of all three of us of Anabaptist background, got together and began a Bible study on a Saturday afternoon on the recovery of the Anabaptist vision. Some of those tapes are still available today, taught by Brother Dale Heise. And uh, the reason that we chose that subject is because we recognize, well, all three of us were descendants, direct descendants of the Anabaptists, and also because of where we were at in time and history, we saw a tremendous departure from the truth that we had read and studied. A couple of us had studied quite extensively uh, on Anabaptist history through the years prior to that, 1982. And in January, we sat together of that year. We thought it good to uh, reminisce and to read and study that subject for what we hoped would be the beginning of a revival movement of which uh, many in this tent have become, got to be a part of. And also the fact of where we live. We lived in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. And that was, uh, at that time, I think, according to uh, uh, one of the local historians here, a River Brother man who had charted all of the Anabaptist-type churches, and I believe there were at that time 17 different groups divided to such a degree that basically had nothing to do with each other, 
that would all have claimed a, a historical foundation in the Anabaptist Church. I think there are now 30-some. Uh, I think he's still uh, living and still keeping that history up, and I believe there are now 30-some groups that basically have again so divided from the Dortrecht Confession of Faith, which had united them in 1632, that there is so much division in this county and, uh, and so much uh, 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 animosity and shunning of one another as uh, is, is, is very, very serious, I would say at the least. A departure of faith and doctrine was one of the burdens of our heart. Now we recognize, we look around ourselves in this county, that there are fragments that have remained. One of the major ones has been to still hold on to the not going to war or to being defenseless in the sense of non-resistance. We recognize that that has still held on to a number of groups, but nevertheless, is eroding tremendously in the more liberal groups, and men are again enlisting in the army, taking up the machine gun and going out to fight, which is a sad, sad commentary of the Anabaptist uh, heritage and movement here in Lancaster County. But in general, we saw rather a great drift into worldliness and legalism. We often say that we uh, warn young Christians who come out of our settings that there's a ditch on either side of the road. And it's very important that we understand that because we have seen uh, um, literally countless hundreds of people getting caught in one ditch or the other. And we actually felt uh, 25 years ago that we had a, a, a pronounced uh, a uh, big ditch on one side and a big ditch on the other, and we were trying to uh, revi uh, revise somewhat of a true middle road, so to speak, between those two who, again, uh, had the Bible as the sola scriptura, meaning that it was the, the authority of the Word of God was, again, uh, the principle which by we believed in and lived. We had, like I said, worldliness on one side, or legalistic, dead, formal religion with little life or reality. And I also want to underscore that it is no way that I would like to lift up any book above the Word of God, but only as a history book. I do recommend it very highly for you to get a hold of one and to sit down and read it extensively at times in order to uh, understand uh, the history of the Christian church through the ages. And I believe this uh, especially would help us to be in stark contrast today of the, uh, uh, the uh, ease in which men are swallowed up by Protestantism and, and, uh, and the charismatic movement, uh, uh, especially those who come out of uh, Anabaptist background. So we recommend the study of true historical Christianity in that sense. And we do this also in direct contrast of evangelical easy believism that we have today and the empty emotionalism on the other side also in the Pentecostal and charismatic movements of our time. 
a man by the name of Nicholas Stoltz, who's out of Indiana, wrote a book some years ago called Faith Worth Dying For, written on the basis of the Waldensians, and a very interesting book, very challenging book to me, uh, maybe, uh, again, 30, 35 years ago when he wrote that, uh, was indeed a challenge to me, and I will also be speaking some. I would like to give a scope a little bit. The Mars Mirror does bring in, like I said, beginning at the time of the apostles and showed the end of the twelve and how they were, uh, how they died and where they died and how they were crucified, many of them upside down or burned in an oven or uh, beheaded or um, put in exile. John, incidentally, is the only one who died a natural death, and he was an old man and had suffered much, I believe, in loneliness in the Isle of Patmos, where he got the revelation of Jesus Christ that we have before us or in the Bible. And so all the rest of them were, were, uh, 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 died before their time in times of persecution. Uh, that rose up there in Jerusalem, of which James and Stephen and some of them were the early ones, the first ones to be uh, killed for their faith, and that began a, uh, a process of which, uh, uh, first of all, pagan Rome and the Jews killed a number of our brethren in the early church. And then, of course, we have the great uh, uh, disappointment and catastrophe, I believe, of, of uh, Constantine uh, claiming conversion and bringing an end to uh, pagan uh, persecution. And a lot of people look back today and rejoice at that, and I'm sure it was a great relief to the brethren temporarily. But that gave birth to the Holy Roman Catholic Church, which then became a persecutor far worse than what the Roman pagans ever were, and uh, plunged this world into the dark ages of which the uh, Anabaptist movement and the Valdensian movement came out of, and, uh, and uh, I don't know if many of you realize that, but uh, most good revival movements in history come out of dark ages. They come out of incredible darkness, religious darkness and spiritual darkness prior to it. And uh, we noticed that especially with the Valdensians and the Anabaptists, and we notice it today in the revival among the old colony Mennonites, the old Amish, the Hutterites, and other groups similar to that, that they are coming out of a couple of hundreds of years of incredible darkness and, uh, and bondage and uh, um, deception, religious deception, and that is one of the, one of the great uh, thrills about uh, revival in our time, and it seems to mostly come out of those backgrounds. And also there's some of it in the uh, acute apostasy among the evangelical world that has also produced a revival, which we often talk about the remnant road or the remnant movement that has united with many of us Anabaptists and are finding common ground. And that's a great joy likewise. Now, uh, I would like to speak, first of all, a little bit on some of the, uh, maybe it was good that, uh, that Brother Melvin didn't go into the Dortrecht Confession of Faith because I do want to look a bit at some of the spiritual and doctrinal beliefs of many of these people in the Martyr's Mirror. 
the first thing I would like to read some scripture in uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 11 and just give you a little bit of a synopsis of, of what the concept was in the word of God concerning persecution. It started in the Sermon on the Mount or in the, the teachings of Jesus early on in his three-and-a-half-year-old ministry when he began to warn the people as he sat them down and taught them that blessed are ye when men shall persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Uh, we are blessed and, and our joy will be great if that's the case. And then he further taught the fact that men and women would have to be willing to deny themselves and take up the cross and follow the Lord Jesus. And that would be a willingness to depart your houses and lands and husbands and wives and children and lands for my sake and the gospel. And so that was taught throughout his three and a half year ministry. And then by example, he went the way before and suffered that terrible torment and reproach and persecution both physically, mentally, and in every way, and, uh, and died on a cruel cross outside of Jerusalem. But in that time of his earthly ministry, he had told the people that the servant is not greater than his Lord. But if they have done this to me, they're going to do it to you also. And he had laid out in clear tones throughout his preaching uh, a ministry there to the twelve and also to others that a time of persecution would definitely come. You remember the time when uh, they wanted to follow the Lord in such a way and, and uh, sit on his right hand and sit on his left and all that and, uh, and began to uh, uh, say that they were willing to follow him, whatever he might have to go through. And, uh, and he had to tell Peter how that indeed that he would suffer likewise uh, as he had suffered for his faith. And, and he kept trying to bring that point up. But in Hebrews chapter 11, we have the account of the Old Testament saints. And in the account of the Old Testament saints, we have words like, in verse 34, quench the violence of fire, escape the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, wax valiant in flight, in fight, turn to flight the armies of the aliens, and there are uh, uh, some of that that belongs to the Old Covenant and the Old Testament and is not applicable to the New Testament church because they are defenseless Christians. But then he goes on in 35 and says, Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. That became an earmark of the defenseless Christians that there were many times that the doors were opened in the prison. And individuals would not escape simply because they were so anxious and ready to die for their faith. Because they believed, as it says here, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And then in verse 36, it describes what has come in the New Testament church much more. Others had trials of cruel mockings and scourgings. Yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, 
God, having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Now, I'd just like to say that I believe that many of the doctrines upheld by the Valencians and the Anabaptists are very, very important doctrines of the faith. I do not believe that those who ignore them in evangelical Christianity today are giving a clear gospel, a full gospel. If they do not believe, and it's interesting also to recognize that in the early days of Swingley and Luther, they actually embraced defenseless Christianity for a short time until they looked around themselves and saw the reality of what they'd have to face and the public being willing to support them and protect them, they succumbed to that and therefore gave a partial gospel and to such a deterioration of their own faith that they turned out and became a murderers and abusers of Christians and killed them likewise and grounded them and cruci- or uh, uh, burned them at the stake and various other things like that. John Calvin himself, though revered by many evangelicals today, gave his full consent to the burning at the stake of Servetus, or one of the men or brethren in Switzerland who was a defenseless Christian. And therefore I do believe that the great uh, carefulness should be given today with any compromise that we should make with typical Protestant Christianity because it is preaching a partial gospel and uh, needs to be, as Aquila and Priscilla, taken aside and explained the way of God more perfectly. It is not that none of those have not been born again and not made a beginning in their Christian life through ignorance. And we must understand that and not give them too cold a heart and rejection at the beginning because they may just have never heard, like we had heard Brother Melvin say, is also true of our old order people. They have no idea what the Vorhide is. They don't understand the Dorset Confession. They don't know what it taught. And I hear that many of our young, young uh, uh, plain girls in Lancaster County give an incredible answer when the tourists ask them why they have that thing on their head. They don't have a clue that it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 taught in the Word of God. But the only answer they have is the church tells us to do it. And so I believe, yes, uh, carefulness should be given because ignorance is ignorance. And many times people need to be brought along to understand the full faith and the full understanding of the scriptures. A faith worth dying for. And I um, I was so impressed in reading that book uh, by Nicholas Stolzis years ago as he described the uh, Valdensians uh, being their properties confiscated and because of their faith in Christ chased out of their houses and they took a trek across the Alp Mountains in winter burying their little babies in the snow by the side of the road and suffering incredible tortures and, and uh, discomforts in their flight to try to find somebody who would accept them and allow them to live in peace in their faith. A faith worth looking for. And that mirrors the entire martyr's mirror from the beginning of the time of the apostles on giving an account of each century. It is very, very important student reading 
for all young people that are born again and that uh, have an early beginning in their Christian life, that they take that to heart and understand the faith that has come through the ages. Now, like I say, and I've said this many times before in, in some of your presence, I also believe that it is a right thing for us to understand by interpretation of Scripture how the Scripture is interpreted to begin to view how the church through the ages interpreted, interpreted the Scripture. And therefore, if we follow the historical account of the defenseless Christians, we have a general view of how the Scriptures were understood in, in all of these, uh, uh, what is now, we can say for us, 1,900 years of Christianity. It is a good uh, understanding of that. All right. The first point that was very predominant in the Mars Mirror was the concept of the two kingdoms, that there was a kingdom of this world and there was a kingdom uh, that God ruled with the rulers of this world in a political sense, setting up the kingdoms of this world as he would, but that was in stark separation from the kingdom of God in the church and in the believers, and that those two should not have communion together, that God has a kingdom politically and a kingdom socially that rules over the affairs of this world, but then he has a kingdom of God where he communes with people on a basis. They are born again and are members of that kingdom and therefore should be separated from the kingdom of this world and not have any parts with the political and, uh, and uh, patriotic things uh, in this world. They believe in the two kingdoms and much more could and should be said on that subject. But also in that, there's a separation of church and state. And maybe I'll get to speak a little bit about the ecumenical movement at the end, but I'd just like to show you how that is being eroded in our very midst. The two kingdoms, uh, there's a political kingdom, Romans 13, and there's a spiritual kingdom, John chapter 3, the new birth, being born of the Spirit, and those two are contrary one to the other. And even though God rules over them both, yet the one... They don't know he's ruling over it. They have rejected him. And nevertheless, he, through his sovereign power, still sets up kings and takes down presidents and so forth according to his divine plan. And everything is overseen by him. But they are not in his will, and they are not born again. And I don't believe it's possible for a ruler of this nation to be a born-again Christian and still rule over the nation. I don't think that's possible. The next one that is the cardinal doctrine, may I say, or a very important doctrine of the defenseless Christians through the ages is that of believer's baptism. That a man or a woman should be baptized upon confession of faith with full adult mentality and understanding and therefore enter into a covenant with God for the faith that he has found, for the faith that he has embraced, and seal that faith with holy baptism. And thousands upon thousands of people have died at the expense of that. Now, that is a very interesting subject in our day, and especially in the realm of my ministry, 
because I minister much to former Anabaptist people. And we have come, this is how far the apostasy has come, we have come full circle. And we're knocking on the door of Catholicism today in our plain churches. In the last two weeks, I think, well, I should say about five or six weeks, I was in Bolivia a while ago, just here in, I came home in early July, and I, while there I found out that in Nova Scotia and in Bolivia, both comments have been made by Anabaptists, descendant people, direct descendants of the Anabaptists, that if a baby has been baptized, they should not be baptized again. A direct refutation and contradiction of the entire defenseless Christian stance through the ages. Men are deceived to that degree that they believe that if an infant is baptized, they should not, what, what has happened, they should not be baptized again. What has happened is they are so frightfully afraid of what they call rebaptism or adult baptism that they have brought themselves to that, that degree and that departure from the faith. But believers' baptism is precious, and once again, uh, I would say the same for the evangelical church who is baptizing five- and six-year-olds a lot and, uh, and, and giving them a, a frightful health story uh, while, uh, uh, while they are that young in, in Bible camp or in Sunday school or an evangelistic message and trying to tell them that they'll go to hell if they don't uh, respond and, and, and be baptized. And so they get them into the water at those ages and they don't have a clue what the new birth is all about. And they are not able to comprehend that. That is heresy. It's not right to do those things. But we need to wait to baptize young people until they understand faith in Christ Jesus and have been born again by the Spirit of God. They are not going to hell if they die at five, six years of age if they have not accepted Christ as their Savior. They are safe in those ages until they come to the age of accountability and responsibility before God. And we don't have an age for that. But we know it's that more adult mindset where they can, mindset where they can think through these things and understand them. And another one was the Catholic Church was the great whore and Antichrist system spoken of in the book of Revelation. The defenseless Christians believed that, especially... Uh, from the Baldensians and the Anabaptists on, that the Catholic Church was the Antichrist. And with great boldness did they speak that truth in their debates. All of them are declaring, they usually declared the priests to be some kind of occultic uh, uh, witchcraft uh, magicians to try to put the, uh, the body and the blood of Jesus uh, and cause it to uh, to be the actual body and blood as you take the wafer in the Catholic Church with the Catholics' belief. Our brothers would tell them that that is witchcraft or is occultism to believe those kind of things. And they called those men uh, the right kind of names in showing them very clearly that they are a total departure from truth by believing such things. So they, they also believe that. Now let me just go, I'd like to give you uh, a little bit 
of some of the tenets of the Anabaptist uh, vision that it came very predominant, which, uh, again, in, in some of the Waldensians I'm going to give uh, here at this time. They believed in a practical, literal interpretation of Scripture. Now, one of the great differences between Zwingli and Luther and the Anabaptists was the fact that both of them would declare that they believed in sola scriptura, that the Bible is the only way of faith. But uh, they did not believe in following Christ in life. And, and, only, and that developed a weak uh, mentality of a, a, a historical assent to believe that there was a Jesus and he died on the cross, but not a hard experience that so changed their life that they were willing to live as Jesus did and live a separated, godly life. The Anabaptists were not known for their theological expertise. They were not considered theologians. Knowledge came much by obedience and by doing and following Christ in his life and, and by understanding the scriptures. But nevertheless, they were the greatest debaters and refuters of lies and untruth in the debates, in the trials. If you read that in the Martyr's Mirror, you will find out that some of those men could debate beyond anything that I've seen in our time. They were well-versed in the Scriptures, and they understood them, and they believed the Scripture that it should be given them what to speak by the Holy Spirit when they are brought before authorities like that. And God manifested that very clearly. That, that is a wonderful thing, how though they were not, none of them had gone to Bible school, there were no theological institutions, there were no seminaries at that time, uh, well, there were uh, in the state church, but not for them. They, that was taboo to all of them, and they just simply took the word of God and believed it by faith, practiced it, and from there on we have this great revival coming out. Now, I believe the Anabaptist revival was one of the greatest, greatest revivals in all time. I don't know how much you realize that the influence of Anabaptism had on the entire world in the time of its great uh, uh, day. But before it is the reason that anybody today basically has freedom of religion or freedom of conscience, it started with the Anabaptists. Before that, everybody in every lo local town was coerced into the religion of the town. If it was Catholic, everyone had to be Catholic. If it was Reformed, everyone had to be Reformed. If it was Lutheran, everyone had to be Lutheran. And they had no clue or concept of freedom of religion or freedom to live your faith according to how you understand the Word of God. And through Anabaptisms, those governments, including the government that we have here, so powerfully influenced them that it has brought us the freedom that we know today, and we question also how much that freedom is actually what is happening with that freedom today, but nevertheless, um, the church has enjoyed many, many uh, centuries here, or a number of centuries of freedom of religion. Swearing. They believed that swearing was wrong, and you could not, you needed to literally believe it was a Sermon on the Mount uh, taught. That your yea was yea and your nay nay. And whatsoever was more than these cometh of evil. The Catholic inquisitors and examiners would swear and curse in front of the Anabaptists, but they would only answer 
with uh, simple yes and no answers and affirm the things which they said from the scripture. Divorce and remarriage. We have that as a major thing today being tolerated extensively in the evangelical world, in the Catholic Church likewise somewhat, is beginning to, uh, or annulling the marriage is what they have done to get by their stance of not believing in divorce. They just have the marriage annulled. And that, of course, uh, is allowing them to leave a wife and marry another. But that also was a major issue through anabaptism in its years to believe uh, against the, uh, the divorce and marriage, uh, remarriage. Another one we have is modest apparel or modest attire, void of outward display. That was also a major tenet of the Anabaptist movement down through the years where they covered their bodies, they covered the nakedness of their body and would stand against the exposure that we know today that is again has taken over extensively in much of the churches everywhere. Jewelry, rich lifestyles, uh, and so forth were, were rejected. They covered their heads according to a literal understanding of 1 Corinthians 11 as a display of submission under their authority, their husband, and also because of the angels and other reasons could be given there. Separation from the world and non-resistance were also major doctrines among them. But they knew what they believed, and they defended everything by Scripture. It was not empty standards or just futile things that have no basis and no, and no foundation in the Word of God. That's why you find the confession of faith in the martyr's mirror so in contrast with the common standard books that are extant today in many of the Anabaptist churches that have come from them. You have a standard book, a, a quite a thick book today, and ever getting thicker as men try to legislate holiness and rule over their people by rule, by standard rather than by spiritual life and by the power of the Holy Ghost and by revival and by repentance and so forth. They try to legislate holiness by rule and by standards, and that the Anabaptist Confession of Faith have nothing of. They do not have a detailed standard on exactly how a man should uh, comb his hair or what color socks or shoes he should wear or uh, how he should hold up his trousers or whether he should have a beard or not a beard and all those things, they are non-existent in the confessions of faith of Anabaptism. And I only say that to remind you as to how far many of these groups have departed from that historical faith. And yet the issues were much the same as today in their refutation and separation from Catholicism and Lutheranism and the Reformed Church. A lot of the issues were, are the same because those churches would not take the word of God literally because they would not. Uh, they just ignored many of those things. As you know, there are many evangelicals today who question whether the Sermon on the Mount is even for our day and is basically being rejected to the thousand-year reign or to some other age. The separation of church and state I already mentioned, but I'll just give you a few quotes here that I'd like to give. Luther said, Sin boldly, 
but believe in God's forgiveness. Imagine how that easy believism gave the license to sin back and then coupled again with unconditional eternal security made a haven for people to live in sin and not depart from it. Hans Dink said, no man, an Anabaptist said, no man can truly know Christ except he follow him in his life. The Anabaptists believe in discipleship. They believe that young men should be, young women should be taught and instructed. And though I believe that a lot of this responsibility should lie upon the Christian home, I do realize that it also lies upon the Christian church, and there should be much instruction given concerning the way of Christ and discipleship of a godly life after the teaching example of Christ. Christ was their hero. They could not accept the, re- the reformed view of total depravity. That is a marked difference, likewise, of the defenseless Christian in the martyr's mirror. They did not believe that a man was so depraved that he couldn't seek after God. I just, uh, it was so beautiful again to hear some of the testimonies this week of how your searchings for God in a very primitive and a very, very small way began in some of your hearts and manifested and grew and increased until you were born again and God's mercy was upon you. But the belief of total depravity of Calvinism is of such that a man is so deprived that he can't do anything, so depraved that he can't do anything, and he just has to sit there and wait on God to call him. And I remember years ago finding people that were in the worst of sins and bound by them and felt they had to sit on their rocking chair and wait till God would move, that there was nothing they could do to turn from their sin and repent and come to God. Not a mercy upon such a deception, such a lie given to the people, and it's taking millions to hell tonight, today. I actually believe that. They are going to hell because they do not believe that they can seek after God and read the Word of God and pray and cry out to God for his mercy upon their life and their sin and help them. The Anabaptists believed that man was responsible for their, for their actions, all of them, and that if they found themselves like many testimonies gave, that I can't do it, I can't live the Christian life, I need help from God, and that opened the door and God's mercy came upon them. The baptism of infants was a major issue in the debates in the martyr's mirror. All the way back through, the infant baptism came on the scene shortly after uh, some of the early church fathers began to depart somewhere around 200 A.D. Uh, they, got, they got the idea that baptism, they, they, the first flaw was baptismal regeneration. That it is actually baptism that saves you. And then when they reason that, then they begin to think if children die without being baptized, they'll go to hell. And so that brought about infant baptism. But it is because of the era of re- baptismal regeneration that the water washes away sins and baptism truly converts the individual. And that is a false concept. That is not true. We need to have a spiritual experience, uh, as the Bible says, of the spirit and where the wind blows, you can't see where it comes or whether it goes. So are they that must be born of the water 
and of the Spirit, and not by some outward ceremony and there expect baptism to be uh, your conversion. But like was said to us in one of the testimonies the other night, the individual was not ignorant of that, that he actually felt like baptism was the conversion point. And multitudes of people today, young people, wait for the change, but nothing happens because at their baptism, because they are waiting upon the baptism to do something to them. I mean, I've never sought after God in a spiritual way. I've never truly repented of their sins and cried out to God for mercy. Another tenet of the defenseless Christians or Anabaptists was the fact that we can overcome sin by the grace of God. Anabaptism was a positive belief, not a negative one. They believed that it could do something for you and that it gave you power over sin. They believed in that resurrection power Brother Daniel spoke of the other night, that that would change you and, and you could call out upon God for that power in your life. And any and every sin that you were bound by, any wicked habit could be overcome. And they rejected the the uh, view of of uh, of just being poor human beings and needing to pray every night before you go to bed, as God would forgive you, as was more extant among the Protestant people around them. They believed that life was an ongoing struggle against temptation, but man could resist it. But there was always a possibility of backsliding, of recanting under persecution, and hundreds and hundreds of them did recant. I was reading an account yesterday again of a group of women that were threatened with being buried alive. And I can't imagine that. They did that quite a bit. That There were times when they buried women alive and uh, burned men at the stake or killed them with a sword. But, uh, and upon hearing that, you know, a number of them recanted and went back. Now, praise God, some of the men likewise did through those years, but uh, there's certainly a number of them that after they came to their senses, they realized how great they had sinned and repented again and went right back and told the authorities that I was wrong to recant. I'm sorry for it. The authorities grabbed them again, stuck them in the jail, and took them out to the stake and burned them shortly after. And they went to heaven rejoicing and singing as they went. I'm going to give you some other things here. I have also too much material, I'm sure. I have a book with over 1,600 pages uh, to go through. And uh, you can imagine if Melvin had a problem with 18 articles, what kind of a problem I might have. But I would like to now go to the divine manifestations of God in their lives. That gripped my heart, that some of the divine manifestations, you know, when, when things get black and white and things get real, real clear, Many times we will again have God vindicating his truth by divine manifestation. Brother Daniel said last night again how in the Amazon, how this star broke up and came down upon people and uh, as, uh, as uh, tongues of fire or whatever, and that God can do anything that he wants to do. And that comes so clear. 
in the in the Anabaptist movement. Let me give you the account uh, of that here in uh, if I can get my proper notes here. I'd like to talk about Augustine the Baker, who lived in AD fifteen fifty six. And somewhere thereabouts, he was a baker by trade who had forsaken the world and been baptized upon his faith according to the ordinance of Christ, which the papists could not endure. Now, that word papist is the word for popes or the Catholic authorities, which the papists could not endure. There was at that time a burgomaster who was very bitter and filled with perverted zeal who sometimes said that he would furnish the peat in the wood to burn Augustine. That's Augustine the baker. The bailiff had said that he should not apprehend Augustine without previously warning him, but he didn't keep his word, and he came and he found Augustine at work and, and needing his dough in the bait shop there, and he, uh, uh, Augustine quickly tried to flee out the back door, I believe, but he was instantly seized by his pursuers and cast into prison. And as he was a man who was much beloved, he greatly grieved the bailiff's wife, who said to her husband, Oh, you murderers, what have you done? But all in vain. He had to follow his Lord Jesus as the lamb is led to the slaughter. As he steadfastly had heard to his faith, they passed a cruel sentence on him, namely that he should be tied to a ladder and thus cast alive into the fire and burnt. On his way to his death, he saw one of his acquaintances to whom he said farewell, uh, Cornelson, and... Uh, and he says, I hope that we shall hereafter be together forever. I think it was a Christian friend there. Whereupon the burgomaster replied out of a heart, judging with partiality, he will not get to the place where you will go, but he goes from this fire into the eternal. Thereupon Augustine said to the burgomaster, I cite you to appear within three days before the judgment seat of God. As soon as the execution was over, the burgomaster was instantly smitten with a raging sickness and continually cried with a guilty conscience, Pete in wood, Pete in wood, so that it was terrible to hear. And before the three days had expired, he died, which was a great sign to the all-seeing eye of God who would not suffer such cruelty to go unpunished, but an example uh, to to those who were who were looking on and to those of the community, I believe. Divine manifestation in uh, 1553. There was one called Simon the shopkeeper. When he freely confessed, rejecting all self-invented infant baptism together with all human commandments and holding fast only to the testimony of the word of God, hence he was sent to death by the enemies of the truth and was thus led without the city and, and burnt for the testimony of Jesus. Many of the people were greatly astonished where they beheld the great boldness and steadfastness of this pious witness of God. The bailiff who had him executed on returning home from his deed was laid upon a bed of severe sickness and constantly exclaimed with sorrow and remorse, Oh, Simon, Simon, 
And all the priests and monks sought to absolve him and were nevertheless not able to give him the least comfort. He soon died in despair as instructed the memorial example to all tyrants and persecutors. George Libick and Ursula Hellringer, Hellringling, about the year 1544, George Libick was imprisoned for the faith and divine truth near Innsbruck, that's in Austria, and as this is a place of particular danger because of evil spirits, as it is well known, this brother therefore had much to resist and was greatly tempted by the evil one who tempted him in visible form. He especially tried him in various ways during the first year. Once he came to him in the form of a maiden and wanted to embrace him. When the brother knelt down and prayed, he put something into his way, preventing his praying. He also tried to take him off with him, but was not able to affect it. He further came to him in the form of a youth and also of a soldier, thus trying many and various means, but when he could not accomplish anything, he went out the top of the tower, and went out of the tower at the top. Later on, they actually put this, a beautiful young girl, a believing girl, who was also apprehended for her faith, they put her into his cell with him. The sister by the name of Ursula, Hellringling, a beautiful young woman who had also been apprehended for the faith, was put to him in prison, placed at the feet of George, and much of the time left with him. It is easy to imagine what the devil in his seed would have liked to see. But these two pious witnesses of Christ were valiant and God-fearing and could not by the allurements be moved or caused to fall. Philip of Logenslonheim in 1529, when the executioner struck off his head, when they took him out to, to uh, uh, kill him, something flew into the face. So as he put up his hands to it, which was well noticed by the people, however, they knew not what it was and why he did it. Then the saying went abroad that something like a black hen had fluttered before his face so that he fended himself with his hands. Some said that the blood had squirted into his face, and though he himself knew best what it was, it was nevertheless seen afterward. When it must have, what it must have been for the executioner's nose dropped off close to his face. Thus God punished and visited him because of the innocent blood with which he had stained his hands to so large an extent. Paul's grave was also was terrified and troubled in various ways, so that afterwards he had no longer a desire to wash his hands of it in innocent blood, and would have given much if it would have never taken place. Another account here is given here of a man. There was a judge uh, called Sir Lewis who greatly hated the brethren as was manifest in the imprisonment of these brothers and sisters. With stern words, he asked the council what they intended to do with the Anabaptist heretics, since they had a royal command and mandate, and yet did not have them executed. 
he said he would go himself. He would himself go to the king and inform them of their disobedience. But if they would have them executed, he would draw wood to burn them with his own horses. This Lewis, actuated by the hatred and envy of the old serpent, was not yet satisfied with the blood of the pious and innocent chief of the Lord, and had to fill up his measure in his judgment. He commanded money to be given to those who should tell him where the brethren assembled. A house having been pointed to him, he took bailiffs and watchmen and went with them to the place. There Judge Lewis stepped unawares into an opening before the house, used to let down wine and sprain his foot. He fell down and cried piteously that they should lift him up and let the rascals go. The brethren heard the noise and escaped from the house. After this, Lewis took sick in the death. And as he lay there in agony and severe sickness, he suddenly began to exclaim, Oh, the Baptists, the Baptists. He spoke nothing else but repeated this cry innumerable times. Finally, he roared like an ox and like a wild beast and bit his own tongue. And foam and blood ran out of his mouth so that his wife and children could not stay with him. Only his servant woman who was attached to him remained with him until he was strangled in his own blood. Many other things could be referred to in this great book to show you that this was not a fly-by-night religion that these people had, but it was genuine and it was authenticated by God over and over again. And for that reason, I recommend that faith to you likewise. As the scripture would say, follow me as I follow Christ. We say those words to all of us and recommend it very highly that you consider that in contrast to what we face today. The Anabaptists believe in salvation from sin rather than from hell. They did not believe in just trying to save themselves from hell. They believed in saving themselves from sin. A process to the end, they, they saw salvation as ending the salvation of the body. So it was a process of sanctification and holiness through your entire life. And yet, with great assurance of salvation. He believed to be delivered from this present evil world, not just getting to heaven. It was a regeneration, a rebirth, a new creature, not the old one going to heaven and somehow his sins dropping off on the way up. Or God not being able to see through the blood and all that stuff that men have concocted today. Salvation was not an end but a beginning of a new life, an experience of love worked with others, Christian brotherhood, a church corporately of which Melvin spoke of. The Reformed people went to church. The Anabaptists were part of a church. They were a member of it, and they were not afraid of that word. They belonged to something in an intimate way. Love was relational. Someone says it's like the Protestants today are playing ball without becoming a member of the team. 
But we all know that a good fall team is someone who becomes a part of the team and pulls together as a whole, as a body. And the same is true. They didn't have much for the clergy laity relationship, but they believe in the priesthood of all believers and that true brothers were extremely valuable to the sustenance and, re- and, uh, and, and maintenance of the church, not just good preachers. Swingley once made the statement that it seems their lives are unreproachable, pious, unassuming, attractive, motivated by divine motives. Bollinger once said they denounce pride, covetousness, profanity, lewd conversation, drinking, and gluttony. In short, their hypocrisy is great and manifold, he said. And the other thing, uh, of course, they believed is the discipline, church discipline. And even though that the groups that have our direct descendants of that have greatly, greatly misunderstood that, nevertheless, they did believe in church discipline. They felt that the field was the world. They believed the scripture in Matthew, that the field was not the church. It's amazing. How you hear plain people say, well, the field is the church, you know, and you can't uproot the tares lest you uproot the wheat. But they believed the field was the world. And the church was to be a pure body. And there needs to be discipline to keep it pure, to purge out the old leaven, and to maybe a new lump. That's what they believed and exercised themselves in it. Another one was evangelism. They didn't have any mission conferences. They didn't have any mission organizations or boards. But every man was an evangelist and spread the gospel. And it has the history of some of the greatest expansion of faith known in time. Led by the Spirit of God, they believed in Galatian height, which simply means a total yieldedness of self. What's mine? is able also to be used by others. They did not believe in selfish possession of goods. Well, where do we begin? Where do we end? Let me just say some of the moral precepts left by the Valdensians. We must not love the world. We must shun evil company. We must, if possible, live in peace with all men. We must not go to law. We must not avenge ourselves. We must love our enemies. Now, these are, these are tenets of faith that have basically eroded from the professing Christian church. Look how quick that somebody is willing to go get their lawyer when they have been wronged today. We must willingly bear labor, threats, rejection, shame, injuries, and all kinds of torment for the true sake. And that's why they interpreted those scriptures concerning Christ, that they treated me this way, they're going to treat you that, that way too. And all that live godly shall suffer persecution. They believed those words literally. And so they were willingly, willing to bear those things. We must possess our souls in patience, We must not be yoked together with unbelievers, not only in marriage, but they were very careful 
whether they were yoked themselves in business or other things with unbelieving people. We must not have fellowship with evil works, especially with such as savor of idolatry in all services which tend in that direction, and thus uh, we are to judge in like manner. And here are some other things that are so good too. They shall not serve the deadly lust of the flesh. They shall keep their members that they do not become the instruments of wickedness. They shall govern well their thoughts. They shall keep the body in subjection to the spirit. They shall mortify their members. They shall shun idleness. They shall observe temperance and sobriety in eating and drinking as well as in their words and in the cares of this world. They shall practice works of mercy. They shall live in faith and morality. They shall, uh, they shall fight against youthful lusts or against lusts. They shall mortify the works of the flesh. They shall at the proper time attend divine worship. And I would like to underscore with the heavy uh, drift to go for camping pleasures on the Lord's Day. In my youth, that was looked down upon as a worldly thing. And I remember in Bible school, we were admonished not even to travel much on Sunday, but uh, especially not Sunday morning, but to be in church somewhere in worship of the Lord. They shall diligently examine their consciences they shall purify, improve, and compose the spirit and mind. Now, I'd like to say a little yet about the apostasy of American Anabaptism. That is sad. I don't believe a lot of people realize, but what happened in, you'll find it in the end chapters, the end pages of the Martyr's Mirror that the Anabaptists had escaped Switzerland. Switzerland was the last stronghold for persecution. Germany and Holland had already pretty well quit and became to a point of toleration. And many strong letters were written by the authorities of Holland to the authorities of Switzerland to let up on this and not confiscate their goods. They used to take everything they had and banish them at the border escort them to the border and banish them without any money or any of their goods. And they had to make it on their own, and some of them died due to overexposure and sickness and so on. And so a lot of pressure was given by the government of Holland there to the governments of Switzerland to ease up on their persecution. But from 1670, when the last chapter was written in the Mars Mirror, until 17. 30s, 20s and 30s, when the first Anabaptist minister came to this world, we have approximately 60 years, but not only that, many years before 1670, when the Martyrs' Mirror ended, there was already lethargy and apostasy taking place in Holland and in Europe. We have many of the Swiss brethren coming up from the Platinum up the Rhine River getting ready to get in their ships to go to the United States that were grieved at the worldliness, even in dress and in conduct by the Holland churches at that time. But something drastically happened in Alsace. A lot of the 
and a lot of the Anabaptists, due to the persecution in Switzerland, immigrated in the 1600s, late 1500s and 1600s to Alsace and lived there for 100 years before they immigrated to the United States. And something drastically happened there because by the time the Anabaptists immigrated to the United States, there was a tremendous loss of the Anabaptist vision. As you see their behavior in the United States when they got here, the first thing we notice is that they lived peaceably among the Indians without any desire to evangelize them. Missions was gone, was lost by the time virtually any of them came to the United States and seemed to have very, very little permissions for almost 150, 200 years until a revival came, and that revival came through other groups not out of their own bowels many times, but I, I would expect there was some discontent and dissatisfaction, uh, but uh, not enough. The other one is the, uh, the uh, bringing along of their books of witchcraft. They had lost discernment to such a degree that they brought the most, per the most ranked books of witchcraft called the 6th and 7th Book of Moses, which was the Devil's Bible, or the Re Egyptian Sorcery, the Book of Egyptian Sorcery. And you can go to the Mennonite Historical Society down the road here in Lancaster at their book sales, and they will sell those books to this, uh, to this day that comes out of older Anabaptist-type people donating their books to the Historical Society, and they're having a book sale. And you can find that 6th and 7th book of Moses over and over and over again in their list of books. I saw that myself when I used to get that list of their book sales and had attended a few of them years ago when I was uh, doing a lot of uh, reading and searching in literature and uh, ancient literature. The other thing is the excommunication and shunning of Christians. That is probably alone been one of the greatest detriments to Anabaptist history in Lancaster County and across the United States. And it's still extant today all over the place. That started primarily in about 1870 when a young man, a son of a preacher, left the Amish church and joined the Mennonites. And it was decided by one man, one minister alone, that we have to put up a fence to keep our people in. We can't just let them go to other Anabaptist-type churches. And so they put up the fence in the form of the ban and shunning. And instead of it becoming primarily uh, a form of discipline to those falling into sin, it became what I consider a diabolical practice of rejecting born-again people and shunning God's children. And for that, the loss of blessing and an awful deterioration settled upon the church from 1870 until now. And every revival group that existed from that time till now had to come out. There was never a revival of the group. And I want to tell you that. You will never get one across until 
you deal with the excommunication and that depleted side. Then there might be some hope for revival within. But for the most part, until that is dealt with, I believe that is the one God-forsaken belief in their midst. And his never will they be able to find their way to the truth until they deal with that issue. And uh, it's interesting to find in our time here how other groups, not specifically of the old order Amish groups, but now also Mennonite groups are picking this thing up uh, left and right. Um, We're dealing with it in Manitoba among conservative groups. We're dealing with it in Bolivia, in Mexico, and Canada, across Canada. The idea of believers' baptism. I nearly got a fist in my face by a father when I baptized his son up in Vienna. He was livid and out of his mind virtually that his son should be baptized upon his confession of faith. And it was, uh, if he wouldn't have been restrained by another son, I'm sure I would have got it. Unless God would have stopped him somehow. He was within a couple feet when he didn't get stopped. But So that is really a sad thing. And, you know, there are a lot of people who I'm very concerned about this reform and trying to reform the churches. Be they who they were, all of these Anabaptist churches, that there is just a gradual reformation is sought for without clear return to biblical purpose, doctrine. That's not going to work. To just get some better morals and just some better youth groups, honor every evil that is, uh, to put away evil. That is a good thing, and I honor those things. But to build a New Testament church, we must get back to New Testament principles. And abandon these things that have happened in the last 150 years that have come down and become a tradition. They must go in order for a New Testament church to again rise. The whole concept of mission, can you imagine? Someone said the other day that, that one of the former Anabaptists or the old type groups have mentioned, and I find this very broadly in my travels. It's not exclusive to one group. But they actually believe that we are God's special people preserved through the ages from 500 years ago for his glory. And if that were true, you should go everywhere telling people about it. And the public is not even invited or welcome in the services. I was in Alberta some years ago when an old lady was trying to tell us that there's absolutely no hope for anybody in California. Uh, A young man who was with me was challenging her. What do you mean? Colony life is the only life. You know, what shall the man in California do that seeks after God? She said there's no hope for anybody out there like that. Unless you live in a colony, there was no way that you'd ever be saved. That was her persuasion. And you can imagine the falseness, the incredible lies these people have believed and absorbed into their tradition and manifold widely it is accepted and believed by some of these groups. But they are special people preserved by God because they are still plain and the rest have gone worldly. And I know that's a sad commentary also. 
I'd like to speak a little bit about that in closing here. But that is sad. And, of course, the other thing is the, the ongoing practice of witchcraft. I've been in communities across the land where they have said, I'm sure, not in accuracy, but there's one on every fence corner. You know, a practitioner every half mile or every mile across this community. And I find out that it is so, so abundant in many of these places, and they have no discernment that they are joining hands with the devil openly and uh, practicing witchcraft and yet claiming to be direct descendants and to be Anabaptists. One of the things, another thing that is a burden on my heart is how the Anabaptist confession of faith has been replaced by the standard system. That is a burden on my heart likewise. The Anabaptist confession of faith is in stark contrast to the standard system. And a lot of people do not see that difference. But that difference is great. I mean, can you imagine reading a confession of faith like the Schleitheim or the Dortrecht confession? And then at the bottom it would say, you know, that you should only ride gray donkeys or you should only uh, wear black shoes or something like that. It doesn't fit by any stretch of the imagination, does it? And yet the standard system is bringing those kind of details to bear upon people and they think they have the keys of the kingdom to do it and they don't have. I do not believe that they have the keys of the kingdom to put anything in there they want and bring it to bear upon the people and make it equal to the word of God. And that's how it's treated. The standard system is basically treated as the word of God and held in equality to it. And in some cases, much higher. Because it's like Jesus said, they reject the scriptures and, and make the commandments of men are much greater and higher. And uh, much deception has come. Instead, as a preservation of God's word, the love of the truth, resurrection power, revival, and such like to maintain the Christian church. I hope I have the grace that if I ever get into a church setting, when life has ebbed away, basically, and people have become worldly and carnal, to not resort to outward rules to try to shape the people back into form. I hope I have the grace to keep doing that. One other thought that I would like to give, and I believe um, this is an important one too, is the matter of identificational repentance that has come in upon us in the last five, six years here in Lancaster County and also across the United States somewhat. If you understand that term, I'll explain it a bit, but identificational repentance. What it means is we need to go back to the American Indian and apologize for taking their land and try to make amends with them. YOM, one of the great mission organizations, Evangelical Mission Organization of the United States and the world, uh, across the world, has sent thousands of young people to take the trek of the Crusades from
from Europe to the Muslim lands apologizing for what the Crusaders did a thousand years ago. And then, of course, we have the same thing here with the Swiss Reformed Church trying to get forgiveness for persecuting the Anabaptists. And what is really behind it is an ecumenical bond and tie. I got a call myself from a local uh, bishop, a Mennonite bishop, who was trying to get me on board for this thing about five years ago when it kicked off here in, in Lancaster County. And I told him this way. I said, the issues still remain, don't they? And he didn't want to talk about the issues. I said, are they willing to forsake infant baptism and get baptized upon their confession of faith? Are they willing to separate church and state in, in Switzerland and recognize that that is wrong? Are they willing to uh, put away their jewelry, their, their uh, uh, immodesty of dress and all these things and live a godly life? That's the issue, and those were the issues 500 years ago. And they are the issues today. And I'm not willing to commune and wash feet when those are still the issues. That's on the basis of trying to get, get forgiveness for what was done 500 years ago. God help us. Identificational repentance is a major theme that a book was written uh, out of uh, Pasadena, California, by C. Peter Wagner on this subject. And it is, it is going into foreign missions and all kinds of people are picking this thing up and are thinking that uh, all of us need to make all of these things right where we, our fathers and grandfathers and great-great-great-grandfathers have done wrong. Well, I think it would be much better that we would take responsibility for our own sins and seek repentance for them. Now, we have a call the remnant. And I believe I'm speaking to a portion of that today. I believe it is not only here, but it's scattered across the world, and it is not only associated with Charity Christian Fellowship or Ephrata or some other churches uniquely that way, even though I thank God for the amount of touching that we have been able to do with some of these groups and, and relate to them. I believe it is a greater movement than what we are. There is a remnant according, called according to God's people, God's word, to come out from among them, to identify the apostate church for what it is, and to basically start fresh and new by the word of God. And I rejoice over that and encourage all of you to be a part of that movement one way or another. Now I would like yet to close in Revelation chapter 3 and 13 with these words. Verse 10 of chapter 3 of Revelation, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell on the earth. I believe that, and also the scriptures in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, concerning great tribulation that shall come upon the face of the earth, that literal, physical persecution shall return to the earth in ways it has already in Muslim countries and in many third world countries like that there are Christians dying for their faith but I believe it will cover the earth 
And let me read the other verse in Revelation 13 to show you how severe that will be. In chapter 13, concerning the reign of the Antichrist, which I interpret literally to be yet be in the future, I believe in an Antichrist system that Mars Mirror speaks about that the Catholic Church was the dominant player of through the years. But I also believe in a man of sin rising up, sitting in the temple of God, showing himself as God in Second Thessalonians 2. But here in uh, chapter 13, verse 7, it says, And it was given unto him, the Antichrist, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given unto him, the Antichrist, over all kindred tongues and nations. God will for time, time and a half a time, or three and a half years, give the Christian uh, group, the Christian church, into the hands of the devil. And I believe that's what is spoken of in Revelation chapter 3, as a trial that shall come upon the earth to try all them that dwell on the earth. And for that reason, and I say it must happen. Because we don't have any idea who's going to heaven and who's not in today's world. Yes, we have a little bit of an idea. I shouldn't say we don't have any. But I read in the paper the other day, and you know they say there's about 62% of the people in the United States believe in being born again and believe in being Christian. Now they say that 10% of the born-again ones believe in reincarnation, which is a Hindu or Buddhist religion, that we should come back in another form. This is unthinkable. But nevertheless, that's the deterioration of churchianity as we know it today. But I believe that God will bring a trial upon the so-called church with enough of severity and enough of testing and trying that it will separate the professed from the true. And I believe that to be nigh at hand. And therefore, I want to say in closing that I think it's good for us to prepare for that and to think about that and to consider what we would do and say when, we, when that trial comes upon us because it may be just around the corner in some of the things that are happening today. We recognize that it is already at the doors. But I believe that God must remove all this confusion and gray matter and finally, again, purge out and call out the true ones from the false, and he'll do it by persecution. And I believe that we should prepare. And therefore, it's good for us to study the martyrs of the past and see how they answered those questions and see how they responded to those cruel mockings and, and uh, jail times and and burnings at the stake, and the Bible speaks specifically in Revelation about beheadings, and to walk up to the guillotines of that day and lay ourselves calmly down on the table, waiting for the knife to fall with joy. One man I read in Revelation, or in, the, in the Marsh Mirror that was so good, you know, he had about three boys, teenage boys, three or four, I think it was, and and the burgomaster or one of the bailiffs came and to get him. And he found him up inside the house and was leading him out. His boys weren't home. And here his boys came home when he was just ready to leave. And he said, boys, you want to go out and get into Jerusalem? And they joined in behind him 
and were killed for their faith likewise in a few days later. So you want to go on to New Jerusalem? Then prepare yourself likewise. Like our master said, if they've done it unto me, they're going to do it to you. And you should not be surprised when that day comes. May God give us grace and strength for that hour, which shall yet come, I believe, upon the face of the earth. May God add his blessing. Thank you. At Unilever, we want our brands to help create a bright future. Lipton works with the Rainforest Alliance. Chapter 2, Part 4 of Fox's Book of Martyrs, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Fox's Book of Martyrs. Volume 1 by John Fox Edited by William Byron Forbush Chapter 2 The Ten Primitive Persecutions Part 4 The Christians about this time, upon mature consideration, thought it unlawful to bear arms under the heathen emperor. Maximilian, the son of Fabius Victor, was the first beheaded under this regulation. Vitus, a Sicilian of considerable family, was brought up a Christian. When his virtues increased with his years, his constancy supported him under all afflictions, and his faith was superior to the most dangerous perils. His father, Hylas, who was a pagan, finding that he had been instructed in the principles of Christianity by the nurse who brought him up, used all his endeavors to bring him back to paganism, and at length sacrificed his son to the idols. June the 14th, Anno Domini 303. Victor was a Christian of a good family at Marseilles, in France. He spent a great part of the night in visiting the afflicted and confirming the weak, which pious work he could not, consistently with his own safety, perform in the daytime, and his fortune he spent in relieving the distresses of poor Christians. He was at length, however, seized by the Emperor Maximian's decree who ordered him to be bound and dragged through the streets. During the execution of this order, he was treated with all manner of cruelties and indignities by the enraged populace. Remaining still inflexible, his courage was deemed obstinacy. Being by order stretched upon the rack, he turned his eyes toward heaven and prayed to God to endure him with patience, after which he underwent the tortures with most admirable fortitude. After the executioners were tired with inflicting torments on him, he was conveyed to a dungeon. In his confinement, he converted his jailers, named Alexander, Felician, and Longinus. This affair coming to the ears of the emperor, he ordered them immediately to be put to death, and the jailers were accordingly beheaded. Victor was then again put to the rack, and mercifully beaten with batoons, and again sent to prison. Being a third time examined concerning his religion, he persevered in his principles. 
A small altar was then brought, and he was commanded to offer incense upon it immediately. Fired with indignation at the request, he boldly stepped forward, and with his foot overthrew both altar and idol. This so enraged the Emperor Maximian, who was present, that he ordered the foot with which he had kicked the altar to be immediately cut off, and Victor was thrown into a mill and crushed to pieces with the stone, Anna Domini 303. Maximus, governor of Scilicia, being at Tarsus, three Christians were brought before him. Their names were Tarachus, an aged man, Probus, and Andronicus. After repeated tortures and exhortations to recant, they at length were ordered for execution. Being brought to the amphitheater, several beasts were let loose upon them, but none of the animals, though hungry, would touch them. The keeper then brought out a large bear that had that very day destroyed three men. But this voracious creature and the fierce lioness both refused to attach the prisoners. Finding the design of destroying them by the means of wild beasts ineffectual, Maximus ordered them to be slain by the sword on October the 11th, Anno Domini 303. Romanus, a native of Palestine, was diacon of the Church of Caesarea at the time of the commencement of Diocletian's persecution. Being condemned for his faith at Antioch, he was scourged, put to the rack, his body torn with hooks, his flesh cut with knives, his face terrified, his teeth beaten from their sockets, and his hair plucked up by the roots. Soon after he was ordered to be strangled, November the 17th, Anna Domini 303. Susanna, the niece of Caius, Bishop of Rome, was pressed by the Emperor Diocletian to marry a noble pagan, who was nearly related to him. Refusing the honor intended her, she was beheaded by the emperor's order. Dorotheus, the high chamberlain of the household to Diocletian, was a Christian and took great pains to make converts. In his religious labors, he was joined by Gorgonius, another Christian, and one belonging to the palace. They were first tortured and then strangled. Peter, an Oinoch belonging to the emperor, was a Christian of singular modesty and humility. He was laid on a gridiron and brought over a slow fire until he was fired. Cyprian, known by the title of the magician, to distinguish him from Cyprian, bishop of Carthage, was a native of Natioch. He received a liberal education in his youth and particularly applied himself to astrology, after which he traveled for improvement through Greece, Egypt, India, etc. In the course of time, he became acquainted with Justina, a young lady of Antioch, whose birth, beauty, and accomplishments rendered her the admiration of all who knew her. A pagan gentleman applied to Cyprian to promote his suit with the beautiful Justina. This he undertook, but soon himself became converted, burned his books of astrology and magic, received baptism, and felt animated with the powerful spirit of Christ. The conversion of Cyprian had a great effect on the pagan gentleman who paid his addresses to Justina, and he in a short time embraced Christianity. During the persecutions of Diocletian, Cyprian and Justina were seized upon as Christians. The former was torn with princes, the latter chastised, and after suffering other torments, both were beheaded. Eulalia, a Spanish lady of Christian family, was remarkable in her youth for sweetness of temper 
and solidity of understanding seldom found in the capriciousness of juvenile years. Being apprehended as a Christian, the magistrate attempted by the mildest means to bring her over to paganism, but she ridiculed the pagan deities with such asperity that the judge, incensed at her behavior, ordered her to be tortured. Her sides were accordingly torn by hooks, and her breast burned in the most shocking manner until she expired by the violence of the flame. December, Anna Domine 303. In the year 304, when the persecution reached Spain, Dacian, the governor of Tarragona, ordered Valerius the bishop and Vincent the diacon to be seized, loaded with irons, and imprisoned. The prisoners being firm in their resolution, Valerius was banished, and Vincent was racked, his limbs dislocated, his flesh torn with hooks, and he was laid on a gridiron, which had not only a fire placed up under it, but spikes at the top, which ran into his flesh. The installments neither destroying him nor changing his resolutions, he was remanded to prison and confined in a small, loathsome, dark dungeon, strewed with sharp flints and pieces of broken glass, where he died January 22, 304. His body was thrown into the river. The persecution of Theocletian began particularly to rage in Anno Domini 304, when many Christians were put to cruel tortures and the most painful and ignominious death, the most eminent and particular of whom we shall enumerate. Saturninus, a priest of Albertina, a town of Africa, after being tortured, was remanded to prison and there starved to death. His four children, after being variously tormented, shared the same fate with their father. Datipas, a noble Roman senator, Calico, a pious Christian, Victoria, a young lady of considerable family and fortune, with some others of less consideration, all auditors of Saturninus, were tortured in a similar manner and perished by the same means. Agrape, Chionia, and Irene, three sisters, were seized upon at Thessalonica when Diocletian's persecution reached Greece. They were burnt and received the crown of martyrdom in the flames. March 25th, Anadomini 304. The governor, finding that he could make no impression on Irene, ordered her to be exposed naked in the street, which shameful order having been executed, a fire was kindled near the city wall, and at whose flames her spirit ascended beyond the reach of man's cruelty. Agato, a man of pious turn of mind, with Cacique, Philippa, and Oitichia, were martyred about the same time, but the particulars have not been transmitted to us. Marcellinus, Bishop of Rome, who succeeded Caius in that seat, having strongly opposed paying divine honors to Diocletian, suffered martyrdom by a variety of tortures in the year 324, comforting his soul until he expired with the prospect of these glorious rewards it would receive by the tortures suffered in the body. Victorius, Carpophorus, Severus, and Severianus were brothers, and all four employed in places of great trust and honor in the city of Rome. Having exclaimed against the worship of idols, they were apprehended and scourged with a plumbity, or scourges, to the end of which were fastened leaden balls. The punishment was exercised with such excess of cruelty that the pious brothers were martyrs to its severity. 
Timothy, a diacon of Mauritania, and Maura, his wife, had not been united together by the bands of wedlock about three weeks, when they were separated from each other by the persecution. Timothy, being apprehended as a Christian, was carried before Arianus, the governor of Thebes, who, knowing that he had the keeping of the Holy Scriptures, 